Yes, the reading is from Luke 1, verse, uh, Luke 1, verses 57 to 80. The birth of John the Baptist. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbours, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of God. Thank you very much, Mona, for that reading. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you all this morning. The phrase that really jumped out at me in those first nine verses was this. What then will this child be? What then will this child be? I mean, the whole thing was extraordinary, wasn't it? His mother was unable to conceive for years. It had seemed like an impossible hope. Time had ticked on. This hope gradually faded as, as the hands of time ticked by, hair grayed, brows furrowed, eyesight waned, strength faded, yet Zechariah was visited by an angel, an angel who promised divine intervention. God would reverse the decay in his wife Elizabeth's body. God will in, would enable her to bear a child in her old age, and Zechariah could not believe it. In his mind, this just wasn't possible. And so God, through the angel, struck him dumb, unable to utter a word, and seemingly unable to hear a word either. And shortly afterwards, while well, his wife Elizabeth did conceive, just as the angel had said, for nothing will be impossible with God. 
and nine long months passed by, and Zachariah lived in the silence. I'm sure he did a lot of thinking in that time, didn't he? I wonder how much he thought about what he might say once he could speak again. How careful I'm sure he'd be with his words. How much more faithful he'd be to his priestly role. And as I thought about this, I thought, well, you, well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's encouraging and fascinating that the Lord did not make Zechariah dumb arbitrarily or vindictively. No, the Lord did so purposefully. He did so that Zechariah might better fulfill the priestly role he was called to. That Zechariah might represent God more faithfully before the people. That he might ultimately be filled with a deep and profound sense of joy and gratitude. And we see that at the end of our passage, don't we? Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Sometimes we'd do well to spend some time in the silence, wouldn't we? In the solitude, maybe to turn off the TV, the radio for a while, to log off social media, to clear our diaries, and to sit alone with the Lord. I wonder what lessons he might teach us in those quiet moments, if only we'd let him. Our world is filled with noise, isn't it? Particularly in this Advent season. Look down with me at verses 57 and 58. We see here a a beautiful scene of rejoicing and happiness. The house is filled with neighbors and relatives, thrilled that Elizabeth's deep longing has finally been fulfilled. The Lord has shown her great mercy and blessed her with this child. And on the eighth day, they go to circumcise the child and to name him. And the most obvious thing to do in that culture at that time was to name the boy after his his father, or at least after some other relative. That was standard practice. This miracle boy would continue the family name, something that had been thought impossible. But Elizabeth comes out with a name that's completely unexpected. Do you see what she says? No, he shall be called John. And people are thinking, well, that can't be right. No one in the family's called John. Let's just confirm things with Zachariah because that can't be right. Elizabeth's maybe losing it a bit uh, in her old age. That cannot be right. So they go to Zachariah and they're like, Zachariah, is this for real? Like, are you going to call this boy John? And Zachariah acts in obedience to the words of the angel this time. And he writes on a tablet, his name is John. And just after writing this, his lips are opened. His lesson has been learned, hasn't it? And his first words aren't bitter or resentful towards God, but they're filled with joy and hope as he blesses and honors the Lord. And I love the reaction of the people around uh, the house. They're really bewildered. They're amazed and they're confused at what's just gone on. This is a crazy situation. What's going on here? What then will this child be, they ask? Because it's abundantly clear, isn't it, that this is no ordinary child. His conception went against nature, and his name went against tradition. It was plain to see that God had intervened in this boy's life and that the hand of the Lord was with him. And so now with his newborn son at his side or even in his arms, Zachariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and launches into a song, a prophecy. God now chooses to speak powerfully through the priest who was struck dumb because of his faithlessness. I, for one, find that super encouraging that God uses a man who was formerly a doubter and formerly faithless to proclaim wonderful truth. And his song, as we'll see, helps answer the question on everyone's lips, what then will this child be? But remarkably, as we'll see, it focuses far less on John and far more on the one to whom John pointed, 
You see, John's whole purpose in life, this boy's whole purpose in life was to point towards another, one greater than he, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even in the womb, John leapt for joy when Jesus was near. Before he was even born, he was pointing towards Jesus. And so in Zechariah's song, we see Jesus Christ is front and center. And that's just as John would have wanted it. And as we'll examine the song, we'll see John the herald, yes, but shining out more brightly, we'll see Jesus Christ, the horn of salvation. So I just want to look at the song in in those two parts, John the herald, firstly and briefly, and then Jesus Christ, the sunrise from on high, the horn of our salvation. So let's look at John. Where do we see him in this song? Well, strikingly, it's only in two verses. Look down at verses 56, uh, sorry, 76 and 77. Just two verses related to the boy in Zachariah's arms. Let me just read those verses, 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sin. The angel Gabriel had told Zechariah that John would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, that great Old Testament prophet who proclaimed truth to a society that had rejected God. And Tim Graham shared a little bit about that with us last week. Elijah stood against the powerful, the influential, the majority in society. And he proclaimed things like this, how long will you go limping between two opinions? Elijah said, if the Lord is God, follow him, or if if Baal, this false God is God, then follow him. He called people to make a decision, to make a choice about the true and living God. He called people to turn away from sin and turn to God. And the angel Gabriel had said, Zachariah, your son will be Elijah-like. Your son, John, will be just like Elijah. And in verses 76 and 77, Zechariah continues to unpack that theme. John will be a forerunner, a herald, one who prepares people's hearts for the coming king, and one who is filled with joy when the king arrives. Maybe some of the men here today have had the honor of acting as a best man at a wedding. The best man is supposed to help everything, get everything prepared for the big day. Uh, maybe su- support the groom in whatever, whatever way they can. I know that it doesn't always work like that, but a good best man should, should do that. Maybe help get the suits ready and the formal wear. Help arrange the transport to and from the various venues. Ensure that the guests are well looked after and comfortable. And John is the best man in this scenario, the friend of the bridegroom, the friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. He helps get everything ready, and, and, and when the groom arrives, he doesn't hog the limelight. That would be awkward, wouldn't it, if the best man sought to be front and center in all the photos. Hog the limelight. John's not like that. He delights in seeing the groom honored, the groom being made much of. John himself said these words uh, when, it, when he was older. He said, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And I really love that about John. He's so self-effacing, isn't he? He delights so much in seeing Jesus made much of. But if John is like the best man at a wedding, he's also like an alarm bell. What do I mean by that? Well, look at Zechariah's words in verse 77. John came to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John preached hard truths. We read in Mark 
1.4, John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Sin and repentance. Those are two ugly words in our society, aren't they? A few weeks ago, um, a British teacher, a former headmistress called Catherine Burblesing, she posted a tweet in which she endorsed the idea of original sin, the idea that we're all born with this inclination towards evil and that kids therefore have to be taught right from wrong. And she received massive backlash to that tweet. One human rights lawyer commented and said what she was saying is appalling. People were disgusted that you would dare to say that, that people are born sinful. Don't dare tell me I'm a sinner, our society says. Don't dare tell me to repent. Don't judge me. Yet ironically, our society in the very next breath cancels, condemns, and judges without mercy. And John was like, an alarm bell. He warned people with, with, with hard truths at times to turn from their sin, to turn from their rebellion against God and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He made people aware of their sickness and God's judgment to come so that they might turn to Christ, the great physician. And John's faithful proclamation of truth, well, it led to a violent and gruesome death before he reached his mid-30s. You see, those in power didn't like being called sinful, So they tried to cut off the very voice of God by removing John's head. John was not a reed that swayed in the wind. He was determined to preach the truth, to point people to Christ, come what may. And as I thought about John's life, even in this short passage, the truths we see about him, I thought, what a challenge to me and to us as Christians as we begin this Advent season. What a challenge to us to be men and women who imitate John in our passion to bring, to bring people to Jesus, to get out of the way and to bring people to Jesus, not to hog the limelight, to be willing to cross the pain line and, and, and speak hard truths at times, to ask non-Christian friends what they think about the Lord Jesus, maybe to ask them to come to one of the carol services we have on over the next number of weeks. So you can take one of those massive flyers and give those out. We do have some small, just to clarify, we do also have some smaller flyers as well. Uh, so you can take a smaller one. But the massive ones really make the point, I think. Drive it home. But, but why not take one of those flyers and ask your friends to come to the carol service? That can be hard, can't it? That can be awkward. But John would have done it. Let's be prepared to winsomely talk about sin and repentance and salvation. Let's be like the self-effacing best man, but also like the alarm bell. So that's John. I want to spend the remainder of our time doing what I think John would have wanted us to do, and that's gazing at the one to whom he pointed, Jesus Christ, the sunrise from on high. The first words of Zechariah's song in verse 68 are to bless the Lord God of Israel because he has visited and redeemed his people. The Lord has visited his people. How do you react to that statement? I think it's incredibly powerful. Roop's alluded to it in prayer that sometimes we get very used to these things. Let me say that again. The Lord has visited his people. The one who created the universe, the one who flung the stars into space, who crafted the galaxies, who sculpted the atom, the God who gives you every breath that you breathe, the one who is mighty and majestic, this Lord has visited his people, says Zechariah. And why has he done so? What what prompted such condescension? Well, it's this, our passage tells us, he came to redeem them, to buy them back. As John has been declaring, 
Human beings are captive, captive to sin and Satan, held hostage by dark forces, a people whose hearts are hard towards God, a people in bondage to sin and the fear of death. And the Lord comes to redeem them. On one, on one occasion, the Jews questioned the idea that they were in bondage when Jesus was ministering to them. They said to him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is why Zachariah is so jubilant here. That's why he's filled with this joy and thankfulness because God has visited his people with a purpose and that purpose is redemption, to liberate them from slavery to sin, to liberate them from the fear of death so that they might know the freedom that comes with living according to God's design plan. Friends, that same liberation is available to you this morning. Jesus Christ has come into this world to redeem you, to forgive you, to liberate you from your sin. There's a lot of talk of freedom in our world today. But there's only one place that you'll find true freedom, and that's in Jesus Christ. So I simply ask you this, do you know him? Have you come to know him? Have you come to experience that freedom? Another reason why Zachariah was so jubilant was that this was a long-promised deliverance. I think Tim made that point really well last week, that there'd been these 400 years of silence. But actually, the wait for God's promised deliverer, the Messiah, had been even longer than that, 2,000 years or more, in fact. In verse 69, we read about the house of David. In verse 70, the holy prophets of of old. Uh, Verse 73, the oath sworn to Abraham. So Zechariah is looking back and he's saying, well, look at the promises of God in the past, and now look how they've been fulfilled in Christ. Back in Genesis 22, God had promised Abraham that he'd bless him and his descendants, and through his descendants, all the nations of earth would be blessed. In David's time in, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised him a descendant who would reign over an eternal kingdom. And then in the prophet Isaiah and chapter 9, we read these words, very familiar to us at this time of year. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So this is another reason why Zechariah is so excited. He looks back over 2,000 years of history, and he says this is the moment. This is the moment when all God's promises are finally fulfilled. And somehow he, this faithless priest, is part of it. Finally, the horn of salvation has arrived. I love that description of Christ, the horn of salvation, the long-promised king who would skewer the enemies of God's people with his powerful horns. Satan and his dark forces would be utterly destroyed. God's king would triumph and millions, billions of people would be saved as a result. God has remembered his promises, his holy covenant, and has come in a flood of tender mercy. I think the climax of Zechariah's song comes in verses 78 and 79. Uh, Let me just read from, from verse 76, though, just to refresh our memories. 
And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." To me, these are some of the most precious verses in the whole of Scripture. I'm sure many here enjoy them as well. God looked at our world and he saw the mess we were in. He saw the darkness of our circumstances. The fact that we lived in constant fear of death churned up by many anxieties. And God saw that this darkness was inside us also. We hurt others, we're unfaithful, we don't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's. And in fact, we reject God's standards altogether. Yet God cared. And though we don't deserve his tender mercy, and though he dwells in unapproachable light, he cared, and he longed to shower us with his kindness. That phrase, tender mercy, is precious, isn't it? Think of a kind-hearted Father, who sees his rebellious son or daughter on the horizon, that son who's messed up really bad, the son who thinks he can't possibly be welcomed home. And yet the father sees him and he runs to him and he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. God is that father who celebrates any boy or girl or man or woman who's lost but now is found. I love that. I'm so thankful for that. Maybe that's you this morning, that son or daughter who has strayed far, Maybe you've done some really dumb stuff, some really bad things. Maybe you feel trapped in the darkness. But remember God's tender mercy towards you. He wants to welcome you home. I think that's beautiful. Come home, he says. The sun is rising pretty late these mornings. Maybe you've woken up and it's been pitch dark. But as you've got up and opened the curtains, maybe you see a little glimmer of brightness on the horizon. Maybe you stand and watch as slowly but surely that light grows stronger and the darkness begins to flee away. Things always seem more hopeful at sunrise, don't they? And in Jesus Christ, God steps down into the darkness, the sunrise from on high, and the darkness flees. And he floods this world with light. God doesn't stay detached or distant from you, from us. No, instead he becomes one of us. He puts on the very flesh that he created to make it possible for us to have peace, peace with God and freedom from the fear of death. That's something we all would love to have, complete freedom from the fear of death in a world that we're surrounded by death. And so as we close, John the Herald, through the words of a faithless prophet who now has become faithful, John the Herald points us to Jesus Christ, the sunrise. And I think the question John might leave us with this morning is this, how will you respond to the tender mercy God shows you in Jesus Christ? What's your reaction to that? You see, Jesus wants to walk with you this Advent season. He wants to forgive your sins. He wants to show you kindness. He wants to flood your life and mind with light. He doesn't want you to be afraid anymore, even of death itself. Christ has triumphed over sin and over death. So that in the words of of chapter one and verse 74, we can serve him without fear 
in holiness and righteousness before him all our days into eternity. So may Christ bring you light. May he bring light to your darkness this Advent and may he guide your feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we give you thanks for the wonderful truths contained in this passage. Father, we thank you for the journey of Zechariah from a faithless doubter to a man who proclaimed rich and wonderful truths. Thank you that he is a trophy of grace, an example of how you are patient. And we thank you so much, Father, for the truths that he proclaimed. We think of John, the herald. And Lord, we are challenged by his life when we consider Uh, his bold proclamation of truth, even when it was uncomfortable, even when it led to his death, he was determined to point people to Jesus, determined that people might know their need and run to Christ, the rescuer. And Father, when we consider Christ, the sunrise from on high, the one who floods our world with light, the one who has triumphed as the horn of salvation and skewered our enemies, all those dark forces of evil, the one who has triumphed over sin, has won a great victory at the cross so that we can be rescued and forgiven. Oh Lord, we love him. Lord, we delight in him. We thank you that he has liberated us from the fear of death. And Father, I pray for each individual in this room, young and old, may each one know the peace and the joy that comes through walking with Christ each and every day. May they know your tender mercy, Father, as you look out upon us and long to welcome us home. May each one of us experience that and walk in paths of light and peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.